I'm Leslie, and this is a podcast about the hobbies where misfits belong. It's niche to meet you. It's niche to meet you, and welcome to the second installment of our first niche subculture deep dive profile on the fantasy tabletop war game Warhammer 40,000. In the first episode of this series, we talked about the history of the game, where it came from, and in this episode, I want to introduce you to the people who play it. I'm Leslie, and it's niche to meet you. Since the Warhammer 40,000 hobby is one with many points of entry, we learned in the first episode, from painting to playing video games and more, I wanted to first talk to folks who do it all. So I started with Marcus and Josh. Warhammer 40,000 itself really is a science fiction universe meant to take place in the year 40,000 AD. That's Josh. He plays the classic tabletop game, and in fact, he competes on a national level. Everything comes back to tabletop in the sense that that's where it started. So the majority of the Warhammer like fan base is probably engaged in the tabletop game. And that's Marcus. He took a break from tabletop. He played it when he was a kid. He's only played the video games for many years, though that's changing. He started painting his army and gets together with Josh for afternoon long games. Josh and Marcus provided me with a basic understanding of the Warhammer lore and gameplay and gave me some context about the game, which was necessary for my continued journey on my quest to eventually play it myself, which you will learn about in the second half of this episode. I'm pleased to introduce to you now, Marcus and Josh. So, like for someone who has never heard the words war, hammer, 40, and thousand, like in one string, what do you say to them? How do you... So I would say that, you know, we've already kind of touched on a couple of different areas that people kind of gain interest in this universe. Uh, your husband reads books, you know, Marcus is more into video games. I kind of dabble in the tabletop. and But Warhammer 40,000 itself really is a science fiction universe where like the 40k part is 40 you know 40,000 it's meant to take place in the year 40,000 AD so it's a far future timeline basically of our own it started off as just a tabletop game but you know since expanded in terms of like lore and all these different forms of media that kind of give backing to the actual tabletop game so so does it all come back to tabletop then I would say less n- nowadays than it used to because uh, you know some of these spinoffs like this new big Amazon TV show, mm-hmm. some of the video games are getting to be large properties in their own right. Mm-hmm. Games Workshop itself is still probably primarily focused on the lore and the backstory and the tabletop game. But some of these other places that they've licensed the IP to are really kind of gaining steam is starting to rival at least maybe in terms of sales and money tabletop yeah. game. Yeah, I think everything comes back to tabletop in the sense that that's where it started. So the majority of the Warhammer like fan base is probably engaged in the tabletop game. Although to Josh's point in the last probably like three or four years specifically that's shifted to where now there's other ways to engage with the Warhammer IP. You know, the books have actually gotten really good and the table and the video games have gotten really good too. Um, no, they didn't used to be very good. Um, what happened in the last three or four years that had that? They started licensing out the IP to people who understood what to do with it. I think before mm-hmm. they just kind of, 
you know, either they were too heavy handed in some of the other things they were doing, which was problematic because like Games Workshop doesn't know how to make video games. They don't know how to like write like novels. But I think they started to realize what their IP was and like get other people who were good at executing on that IP in their areas, right? So they got people who knew how to write novels, who knew how to publish in that world, people who knew how to make good video games, and they just basically started leasing out their IP, which is kind of what Josh was talking about earlier. So just to get some context, it feels like all roads kind of lead back to Dungeons & Dragons. I I think a lot of the places, a lot of these gaming stores that aren't games workshop stores, so hobby stores, uh, there are several around Nashville that are just more generalized gaming stores. So... They'll have tables set up. They'll have you know Games Workshop products on the shelves. They'll have these other miniature systems, Magic the Gathering, all these different things. Uh, and lots of times they'll have you know, like a, a game night, like it's Warhammer Night or it's Dungeons and Dragons Night, Magic the Gathering Night, etc. It's not c- exclusive to those games. That's just kind of when like the people who play the hobby set up a time to try to get together. Uh, so in that way, there there is a lot of overlap. Yeah, yeah. I think the gameplay itself is very different. Dungeons and Dragons, you you have your character, and so you manage your character a lot. Um, the tabletop game for Warhammer, you have an army, so you have lots of models <laughs> out there that are kind of yours to control and move, right? So the gameplay is a little bit different, but at the end of the day, it's just a bunch of nerds rolling dice and marking stuff down with pencils. You know, <laughs> like, <laughs> if you like to do that, you probably don't actually care which game you're playing, right? You just want to roll dice. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, so the term nerds. This is a term that I, I think I have heard people call themselves nerds. I don't because you know I don't want to call you a nerd, but you've you've called yourself a nerd. So. Talk, talk to me about the word nerd. You know, it's it kind of implies a level of, I don't want to say fanaticism, but just passion. I think passion is a good word for hobbies that might not be entirely mainstream or mainstream yet. Yeah, and it certainly is like a level of interest that's very high, right? Like, I think people can sit down and casually play lots of board games, you know, like... Checkers is a good example, but even something more complicated like Sellers of Catan or something, right? Like people can sit down and not really be like hardcore into board games and they can like figure that out and play and have a good time with their friends. Especially with Warhammer, like you cannot do it very casually like that. I mean, you have to buy all these models, you have to build them yourself, you have to paint them. If you want to play at a games workshop store, which they have like the really nice boards with all the train and stuff, like your army has to be painted and you have to use at least three different colors. They don't come painted. No, you got to paint it yourself. Oh. And like, you can't just like spray paint it all black and say, look, it's painted, right? You have to have three different colors like in your paint scheme on there. Yeah, Josh, because you can talk about going to Vegas and like the checks they do on like the painting and stuff. So, Vegas specifically, there's this past year was right at a thousand people playing Warhammer alone. So, there's nobody like checking your army as you come in, but um, there's a standard that's called, I want to say, battle ready standard where. it's not just like taking three colors and making like a, a mark on the model. It has to actually be three colors in a way that looks like thematically appropriate. And if your army's not painted in that way, then yeah, you can, like I said, have points deducted, get a, a penalty card, things like that. So it's, it sounds subjective, but actually it, it's very clear about what the parameters are. 
yeah, and like this just isn't a game that you play. Like it's a full-on hobby because you have to do all this like assembly and painting. There's the hobby aspect of like you know the modeling part, and then there's actually like the gameplay, right? Yeah. So some people gravitate more towards one and the other, and like you can find people or you can pay them, you know, like ten bucks a model to paint your army if you just don't want to paint and all you want to do is play. Um, and some people get really into the painting aspects. They're not good at playing, so they just build the models for fun um, and, you know, work on other people's armies and stuff like that. Other people, kind of one of the uh, other terms people will call Warhammer is they'll call it Math Hammer. Because um, if you're really good at just doing math, you can statistically figure out, you know, what things are better to put in your army. And so some people get really into that aspect of it and they just pay other people to do the painting for them. So well, that way they're I've able been to play. told there are rulers or tape measures involved in gameplay yep. so the, so it's that specific it's that mathematical the gameplay yeah so like the rulers and things come in each model has like its profile of how far it can move around the table how far it can shoot things like that and taking that math of what it can do and comparing it to another unit's math hmm. can give you an idea of potentially which unit could be better so, like, a really common one is, like, when you're attacking another unit, you're comparing your strength and toughness stats. Yeah. And so, based off of, there's a mathematical equation that you do using the strength of the weapon you're attacking with, the toughness of the unit you're attacking, and the output of that tells you, when you roll the dice, it has to be that number or higher on the die rolls in order for it to count as a hit. So, if you understand statistics and probabilities and that kind of stuff really well, you can create armies where you have lots of value on the table and always pit yourself up against other units where you have an advantage. Hmm. But that requires a very deep level of understanding because you not just have to know your own units, you have to know your opponent's units too and all yeah. of their stats, right? So this is like the level of, I don't know, I guess like passion or interest that you have to have to get mm. into this, right? It's not just like showing yeah. up to a board game night at a friend's house. <laughs> right. So like, Josh, when you go into Vegas, how much time do you have to prep for your opponent? You know, when do you learn who you're going to be competing against and what does that look like yeah so you don't learn who you're competing against until 15 to 30 minutes before the round starts so a lot of it it, it kind of depends on your commitment there are there are teams who work together and play together and practice like constantly against you know pretty much every army that they expect to see in mm -hmm. the, the kind of the topper tiers where they expect to be i'm much more casual so, you know, I've got a good grasp on maybe three or four out of, I want to say, somewhere between 20 to 25 total armies. And then I just go into it and try to pick it up as I go. Uh, there's a lot of common themes across all of the armies. It's like infantry tend to be moved six to eight inches, have a toughness value of this, toughness value of that. So I know a lot of those common similarities. It's a lot of the kind of special rules and interactions where the armies, differ quite a bit has that always been you know when they launched the the game initially has it always had this much structure around it or has that grown over the years you know the colors the painting the i think it's gotten more complex because over the years they've added more rules to it right so there's there's more content now than there was you know seven eight nine years ago but mm -hmm. like the overall like structure is the same i suppose there's more armies now than there used to be, right? And the armies have more units than they used to have and stuff. So that's what I mean by like more complexity. But okay. like the overall structure, I guess, is still kind of the same. And where does where does lore and story meet up with this sort of math and statistic 
So it, it that varies from person to person. So at a tournament like in Las Vegas, it's really just playing the game. Lore doesn't really come into it at all. The crossover tends to be kind of more into more of a casual play style where you'll build your army around kind of a, a, a theme or model it after a platoon or a special character in something in one of the books or one of the video mm. games. And then there's um, like a narrative mission set you can kind of go through where you play out taking over a planet or fighting on a ship or something along those lines. Yeah, definitely in the modern context, it comes in the way of like product launch and tie-ins. So when they're getting ready to launch a new army, they'll make sure books are coming out that tie into the lore and the heroes around that particular army or the lore that goes into it. I'm, I, I bet there's going to be like some sort of Henry Cavill themed model that comes out when the show <laughs> launches, right? Like there's, there's, there's going to be, right? Oh, I uh, hope so. Henry Cavill. I'm glad Marcus brought him up, but we aren't going to talk about him yet. The last episode in this series will look ahead at what's next for this game and why it matters to you beyond just being a case study for the perfect hobby. Josh and Marcus give us the beginnings of understanding for this and help us build context for how we can enter into this literal universe. So, into the universe, we will go. Coming up next, you get to meet my ultimate Warhammer 40,000 guide, Robert as he lets me borrow his army of space marines and we assemble them at long last against opposing forces in tabletop combat. I learn what compels these folks to engage with this complex universe and how measuring tape is such an important part of the Math Hammer Nerd Toolkit. More after the break. Hey, we'll get back to the episode in a second, but first... This is usually where people will ask you to subscribe, rate, and review the show on your platform of choice. And I would love if you did that. It's super helpful. But you know what's more helpful is telling a friend that you like it. So what if right now you texted one friend and said, hey, I'm listening to this new show called Niche to Meet You. I think you'd really like it. You know what I'll even do for you? I will play music for the next 15 seconds before we get back to the second part of the episode, so you can do it without missing a thing. Okay, ready? Here you go. I'd like you to meet Robert. He's my host into Warhammer 40,000 and the one who walked me through gameplay. He's been interacting with the Warhammer universe kind of before he was even born. 40K has been out for 30, almost 35 years, maybe? And my dad's played almost since the beginning. And he got me into this game because he played here 29 years ago. And within two weeks of me being born, he brought me here. So I've been coming to the store my entire life. Robert is a community leader at the GameKeep. This is the shop in my town. When the current owners took over the store, they recognized the need for building of community to make the business successful and meaningful, especially for games they may not be intimately familiar with themselves, like Warhammer 40,000. So Robert and others like him were invited to have leadership roles to welcome, teach, and encourage. 
The deal with them is if you help us run the back end, because they don't know anything about 40 I know a lot about 40K. I read the news literally every day for stuff that's coming out, rules that change, all that stuff. Their deal was like, if you get eight people playing here consistently, playing this game that we're going to stop, we'll give you community leader on the premise that you help maintain the group, be a rules adjudicator, um, and help them on the back end with like, what do we need to order? What's a big deal? What's not? Um, it just means I care, and I want the community to grow. It's what it. That's all it really means. So, we started a 40k club. I started with one other person that I knew that played. We started coming in on Thursdays and advertising it in the Discord, and then two became four, four became eight, eight became six. This is in 2021. So since 2021. Yes. Like seriously, we don't have enough tables, um, which is a crazy problem to have, yeah. and it feels really good. When I met Robert at the GameKeep that night, he explained to me the significance of this brand new 10th edition that had just been released. With each edition, changes are made, sometimes significant, sometimes not so much. Robert explained this new edition's changes this way. Simplified, not simple. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So there are a lot of rules at night around like terrain and can I see you or not? Oh. That don't necessarily make sense. Okay. Um, and they were really frustrating for people to deal with. And they had. Because everybody's playing spaces. Correct. Most of these books, um, this one specifically, because I'm more aware of it, within one month of this book coming out, over half of the data sheets were changed. So the physical book was just lore to me at that point. So I spent 60 bucks on a book that was functionally outdated. So the book he's talking about, it's called The Codex. This is an extremely important part of gameplay. And we're going to talk about it in a second. But I want to point out something he said simplified, but not simple. Yeah, in my research, I began to understand the depth of detail and statistics that are involved in understanding this hobby, like in those books, in those codexes, for example. So I got to the point in learning about 40K that I was swirling in a typhoon of details and character names and lore, and I could only get out of it by getting my hands on some models and entering the world of Warhammer 40,000 gameplay. Oh, this is my buddy Aaron. Hi. Hi. I'm Leslie. Leslie, nice Good to, to meet, meet you. you. So you're the one we're, that's going to be setting up the demo game for us? Yes. I'm actually going to go get the rest of my stuff. Go for it. Once the models were out of their travel storage, we got down to it. Starting with the Codex, that book of lore and statistics that drive gameplay. Oh yeah, because then this is the... Uh... So that's the codex with the rules that actually give you the rules for the unit you're playing. And this is the new 10th edition. That is the 10th edition Space Marine Codex. So what I was looking at here is just got pages and pages of... Lore. This is just lore. Lore. Most of the codex is actually just lore. Sometimes they add info and like like the books, but the core story that they came up with 40 years ago is the same. It's not affecting anything. No. So the whole premise and the reason they call them codexes, this is the space bible for how Marines should go out and carry out combat. This is your command structure. This is how you're trained. This he's, is what he's nodding. He's listening and nodding. Yeah, yeah. This is what you've been trained to do. Like, like. But like more or less, right? They show up and and he's like, "This is the way that you all carry out warfare." So. 
the Imperial Fist, like all, all Space Marine chapters are taught functionally on the codex on this is how you carry out war. So we're looking at a Space Marine codex. It's this massive magazine style book, and it has all of the statistics and lore and training and resiliency stats that you might need in order to play this game with Space Marines. And then we start to build our armies. Robert brought an army of his for me to use. As he took them out of the foam packaging, he explained each of their names and roles and backstories. This is Mortarian. He is, he is the demon primarch of the Death Guard faction of, of Space Marines. He's a corrupted Space Marine. Um, and he was taken over and blessed by Nurgle, who is the chaos god of pestilence and disease. Nurgle sounds delightful. He's also granddaddy Nurgle. He's the grandfather Nurgle. A lot of people argue that he's the best one to fall to because he's so happy. Um, but it's at, at, at what cost? <laughs> These names. If you thought Nurgle was good, check out this one. Ballista Strednot. Ballista Strednot? Ballista Strednot. That's an amazing name. It's phenomenal. It's unbelievable. Space Marines, when they are mortally wounded in combat, but it won't kill them because they're super tough, get permanently interred into Dreadnoughts. They then power this armored hulk into, into battle. Ballista's Dreadnought, that's amazing. Only in death does duty end. Only in oh. death does duty oh. end. Hmm, only in death does duty end. Warhammer 40,000 is full of phrases like this. It's a very grim, dark universe. In the next couple episodes, we're going to cover that. We're going to talk about how it's a hopeless world, but is it? Anyway, when we had assembled our armies on either side of the table... We got into gameplay, and for the first half hour or so, it's a lot of this. Um, we've done this. We've done this. So, gameplay is divided into stages. The first is setting up one's army, just putting the models across the length of a side of the table with your opponent on the other side. Now, the second stage is movement and shooting. So each model has a card with statistics, like how many inches they can move in a turn, how many inches their weapon can reach, what die roll is required to wound them, what die roll is required to heal them, those sorts of things. So when it's your turn, you decide which miniature you'd like to move first, choose a direction, and then, I'm not joking here, you take out a measuring tape. Now, you can buy a Warhammer 40,000 branded measuring tape if you'd like, but you know, that paint-caked, roll-up measuring tape from your junk drawer? That's going to work just fine. And then you literally measure from the base of the miniature toward the direction of an opponent. Then you refer to the statistic card for how long of a range your weapon can shoot. And once more, use the measuring tape to determine which opponent's model would be in range. So four of them have a 30-inch range. So is there anything we can see within 30 inches that's not the stupid scouts? I imagine it's probably those guys. From there, dice are rolled. Whatever numbers are presented will determine how much your opponent will be injured, but the opponent has statistics on their card about resiliency, what they would need to roll with their dice to recover from the wound. This goes on back and forth for every miniature. The rest are probably, I was too far. Did you hear that measuring tape open? I was there for two hours, and we only got through one round. Now, true 40K players will find what I've just explained to be reductive. And that's fair. 
This show is made for a wider, less niche audience, and I imagine that sharing too much detail about any one hobby may prevent others from understanding the relevance. Well, for example, earlier in this episode, Robert mentioned that the new edition, the 10th, is simplified but not simple. In previous editions of 40K, there were actual algorithms to compare the strength of attacks against the toughness of the target for gameplay that went away with the 10th edition. Now, that's a lot of detail, but it's details like these that are so important to the people who actually play 40K. These are the discussion points that conjure up conversations around the table on game night and fill forums and Reddit threads. It's part of what gives this particular hobby its specific identity and what draws so many to it. And on that note, you might notice something about the makeup of the voices you're hearing on these episodes. Other than my voice, it's mostly just been men. And yes, Warhammer 40,000 is a very male-heavy hobby, especially in tabletop gaming. And there are women who play the tabletop game, including the former leader of the Nashville Warhammer group, who's a queer woman. When I was doing the interviewing for this episode, she was in the middle of moving her family overseas and wasn't available, but we corresponded over email. And she mentioned this disparity, how rare it is for a woman to be involved in something that is so masculine historically. And I suppose maybe when we're talking about things like guns and battles and war, that there are likely to be more men attracted to it than women. Especially when we learn about its origins in the next episode, that it came from the rubble of World War II, when the childhood games of young boys were playing out the wartime realities of their older relatives. But it's not exclusive. It appeals to all folks from all genders and races because it's more than just a war game. And people like Robert are glad to see recent shifts in gender inclusivity within the hobby. How has the female presence been in 40K during the time you've been playing it? So there are a couple, which is way better than anything from when I was a kid, right? 15 years ago, way better. Well, we have women back there. They're just not playing. Yeah, they're just not playing. They're, yeah. um, I don't want to say they're wives and girlfriends. They are, but they're also yeah. interested in the game. Um, but they don't normally play. They like the building modeling aspect more than the playing aspect. But the building and the modeling for many leads to actual gameplay. Case in point, shortly after he said this, I met one of those women he was referring to painting tiny strokes on a mushroom. I got into the game for the models and the painting because I like doing crafty stuff and I was like, these models look really cool, I want to try to paint them. And then eventually I discovered that the game was also fun because my fiancé plays a lot and he's like, you should learn how to play. And I was like, I mean, I guess I have to since I have models. She is a perfect example of what Marcus and Josh talked about at the beginning of this episode, how there are so many paths into this hobby from painting to video games, to books, to tabletop. Warhammer 40,000 continues to prove itself as the perfect hobby framework. The universe of Warhammer 40,000 is continually expanding, making space for more and more people to engage with this world of art, math, and most importantly of all, community. And we'll talk more about this in the last episode of the series, but now that we've heard it in action, I am anxious to know how in the world something like this gets imagined. What I was experiencing is decades worth of ideas building on top of each other, but still someone had to start somewhere and I wanted to talk to them. 
So, on the next episode of our exploration into Warhammer 40,000, we meet the ones who made it. I'm Leslie, and it's been niche to meet you. This episode was produced by me, Leslie Thompson, with help from Chris Thiessen. Our theme music is by Abigail Flowers. If you like the show, write an honest review, seriously, and tell a friend. And if you want to support us even more, buy me a pizza. See the show notes to learn how. Hey, it's me again. Really quick, I wanted to offer an opportunity for you to give feedback on this show. If you're listening and you are into this hobby, it's a part of your life, I would love to hear from you. Did we get something wrong? Should we correct something? We are totally open to doing future episodes with corrections, but would love to hear from the people who actually play it. So if you go to niche2meetyou.show and scroll to the very bottom, there is a section where you can supply feedback for a particular episode or hobby, and we would absolutely love to hear it. Thanks for listening.